0: Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Precorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week, we have with us Todd Benzman, one of our analysts who, back in November, spent some time doing reporting. In Mexico, near the border, but on the Mexican side, to some degree on the American side, and found really two notable stories that he wrote about for us and were widely disseminated in other media, was picked up pretty broadly. So I figured it was good to have Todd in and talk about these two stories. Todd, thanks for coming on. And to begin with, what prompted this particular reporting trip? You've gone to the border a number of times. Usually, there's some sort of a heads up about something you're looking for. What prompted this particular trip? Sure.
1: Well, there was reporting about a new shelter that opened in Tijuana that was expressly for Muslim migrants. Apparently, there was perception of enough demand, enough of that kind of traffic coming through that it would support a shelter for Muslims. And Because I've written, you know, America's Covert Border War and have written otherwise about that particular national security interest, that caught my eye Mm -hmm. because it's the first and only one like it in Mexico. And because immigrants from countries like that are viewed in a different way by the American national security establishment as special interest aliens, and it triggers this whole sort of Counterterrorism response when they're ever encountered either in Mexico or the United States, but I didn't see any coverage about that
0: anywhere. It was all sort of uh, happy, clappy kind of news about, hey, isn't this great, a new shelter for Muslims in Tijuana, right?
1: Yeah, it was pretty clappy. And so I decided as soon as I could, I'd get out there and check it out. So what did you find? Well, I knocked around for a few days in and around the shelter trying to initially interview some of the guests who were staying there, and I met uh, Tajikistanis and Chechens, mainly. There were a lot of Chechens there at the time. Difficult to communicate with them in Russian because I don't know Russian, and I didn't have a Russian interpreter, but I did have an app on my iPhone that was pretty good for that, so I was able to kind of get the rudimentaries of how they got there and how the Mexican customs treated them and whether they'd been interviewed by Americans or things like that. Right. And also, I was able to get inside the shelter eventually and then meet the shelter director who gave me a good hour to interview about these national security questions that nobody had ever asked. Before, So, one thing that I learned was, for example, that the reason that they established this shelter is because there were enough people coming from the Middle East and from, you know, Muslim majority or even minority countries who were, you know, otherwise having to stay in kind of general nature shelters, and it bothered them that they didn't have the right food to eat, you know, religious, you know, halal foods and weren't abiding by their standards of modesty and separating men from women and didn't have religious services and that sort of thing. So, right. so that was the purpose for establishing this. And it, it was established by a San Diego based nonprofit called the Latina Muslim Foundation in June of 2022 at the height of the mass migration crisis, which we forget also really impacts the Mexican
0: side quite a lot too. Before you continue, it is sort of, I mean, you got this extensive interview with the director and she herself is a Mexican-US dual citizen of, you know, regular Mexican origin who converted to Islam. It just seems like there can't be that big a universe of people in Mexico who converted to Islam.
1: No, you know, it's definitely a very tiny fraction of a percentage in Mexico. I think the CIA World Factbook puts that at, you know, under 5% Muslim in Mexico. So it's definitely a rarity. And converts are probably even more of a rarity. But, you know, this is a somebody who is an altruistic-minded person who... Is with an organization that you know, wanted to help immigrants that everybody knows is heading over the border. This particular center was situated in a former nightclub, bar nightclub that they rehabbed and refurbished, 8,000 square feet, two stories. They've got a minaret up there and a dome and a mosque on the inside. Classrooms, beds, food. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's two blocks from the wall. So when you're standing out front, you could just look down the street and there's the street that it's on
0: ends at the wall. Interesting. Interesting. So you didn't write about this, so probably you didn't get this info, but where's all this money coming from? Because, I mean, it's one thing just to scrounge together some money to buy food every day, but there's got to be some people working there. There's got to be rent, all that construction must have cost money. I mean, I've seen the pictures. We have them at CIS.org of the dome. I mean, the nightclub didn't have that dome or minaret on it. This foundation you were talking about is the one that is funding it, but where are they getting their money? Well, I just asked the question. I I didn't really dig into their tax records,
1: but it's retail donation. You know, they hold fundraisers and You know, they have friends in the national Muslim groups and other nonprofits give money and they have bake sales and things like that. But you go to their website, it's got a Donate Here page, uh, kind of like we
0: do. At cis.org. Yes. (laughs) So you talked to the director. What did she say about this issue of potential security challenges, security issues from what the government refers to as special interest aliens?
1: Well, it was fascinating because you know I wasn't sure how I was going to be perceived, but I was uh, welcomed to ask these kind of questions. Her name is Sonia Garcia. Garcia I first met her inside the shelter, and it was a really busy time. There were a lot of people being emptying out of taxi cabs out front, and they had families in the foyer waiting to be checked in. People from Syria were there, and from. Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, as I recall. And she didn't really have time for me that day, but said that I could call her when I had a chance back in the States, which I did. And, you know, I just asked her point blank. I told her I wanted to take a look at this from the angle of national security, since the Americans view her kind of guests in a special way. Right. Not that I do or anybody else does, but that the Americans do, and so do the Mexicans. And, You know, she was candid and she said, you know, we are very aware of this and we have an interest, a self-preservation interest and a patriotic interest in ensuring that nobody comes through here who we think is going to do harm inside the United States or even in Mexico. She says, you know, as a Mexican and as an American, I don't want that to happen. So she says that, you know, they do kind of pay attention to who's coming through. Some of them they interview for a particular program, which we'll get into, but when they find deception or signs of extremism, they'll go to the Mexicans and call them in. And on a few occasions, the Mexicans will send, couldn't really tell who they're sending, police or you know maybe somebody from the embassy or law enforcement comes out and will inspect and interview them and do national security background checks, further background checks on some of them. Right. But remember that this is a non-profit volunteer staff and they're not experts in national security. They may not know what to ask. Right. They may not know how to penetrate a deception or a cover story or something like that. But they do report it if they can to the Mexicans. Right. So on two occasions she said that the Mexican authorities came back to her saying, don't do not give services to these people or right. to this individual. It's a problem. And when I tried to get a little bit deeper into what that problem was, the only thing she would say is that it, it was terrorism related, but that she didn't know anything
0: else beyond that okay or what they did with them or anything like that. Oh well, yeah, or what happened to them or did they end up getting into the United States eventually? Right. Everybody who
1: goes through that shelter that they meet eventually is going to get into the United States. Right. She acknowledges that quite a few of them illegally, where they pick up smugglers there. But it's worth noting that the Mexicans and the Americans have had a very long counterterrorism partnership about immigrants coming from countries like these, where the Mexican law enforcement and intelligence establishment works very hard with the Americans to make sure that on their side, they don't have a terrorism problem right. or an infiltration problem. And the Americans will you know, be allowed into the detention centers, and the Mexicans will take strong cues about this one should be deported or that one should be deported, and they do deport from Mexico. They're supposed to be interdicting on their side. For these guys you could get across, and then the Americans are stationed there. But they've got the a big consulate, American consulate office, they've got somebody from the state department running it, the consul general, and of course, the FBI is in Mexico City and in Tijuana, also just across in San Diego, supposedly working on these issues together, right? But when I asked how often have you communicated or anybody from the American embassy or on the San Diego side, have they reached out to check in on things? She said, not at all, except with one exception. She said that in, in the beginning, there were a lot of Afghans coming through who did not get the special immigrant visa treatment overseas. So they made their own way to the border to see asylum. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, they seem to be families. The American embassy sent personnel over to do the interviews for humanitarian parole or asylum. It's unclear what exactly that was. Right. And then took them over to the U.S. side, let them in. They have a lot of Afghans. She said, just a couple days before I got there, they sent some Afghan families over. But that for everybody else, there's no proactive program by either the Mexicans or the Americans, at least not overtly.
0: Interesting. So in the piece that you wrote on our site, cis.org, one of the things that looks like you asked her is, you know, would they be willing to cooperate and work with American authorities, say, if they were looking to see if one of the many dozens now of people on terror watch lists who've been caught at the border went through that shelter, that kind of sort of basic, I don't know, investigation, background check and stuff. What did she say about that? She was willing to work with security authorities if they called her up? Right. So there are a lot of single
1: men who come through there. They stay at the shelter for a week, a few days, a week, two weeks, and then they'll hire smugglers and go over it legally. Mm-hmm anybody, she said anybody who even stays at the shelter has to you know, hand over their ID, they copy it, they take all their information. I asked her, I said, well, in light of the fact that so many immigrants crossing from Mexico turned out to be on the FBI's terrorism watch list, has anybody ever reached out to you about any of them? Did they stay here? Did they, do you have information about them? Is it worth a check? And she said, no, I've never been contacted by the Americans about that, but we have files, and I'd be very happy to provide whatever we have to the Americans. All they have to do is ask. Right, but they haven't asked, and neither have the Mexicans. It just seems as though this is a blind spot in the counterterrorism programming that has always been in place in Tijuana. And you know, I interviewed the former ambassador
0: to Mexico, the last one, Chris Landau. Who's been on this program actually several months ago? Yeah, I kind of bent his ear about
1: how should a, the US Embassy be thinking about this? And he said, well, we would obviously have all eyes and ears on that place because it's a rare congregation of special interest A rings in one place. Right. Whereas without that center, you know, they, they're dispersed, they're kind of hard to find. They slip into the country. So that's a unique opportunity. We wouldn't want to close it down. <laughs> you know, it's right, op- right, it's exactly. an opportunity. Yeah. Interesting. And then also there was a former FBI supervisory special agent who did all of the U.S. counterterrorism SIA programs. The special interest alien,
0: uh, SIA.
1: Yes, who said, yeah, thing like that, we would be all over that. I would be all over that. There would be you know, no stone left unturned, overtly over. Or covertly.
0: But you did speak to someone who said that because it's a charitable thing or whatever, it's not on their radar. Was that somebody from ICE? Who was it that you would who had said that to you?
1: Well, I do have intelligence community sources that I checked with who are, have been long involved in these kind of operations mm-hmm. and the intelligence about this. And I reached out and said, Hey, is this thing on the radar? To what extent is this on the radar? One particular person who's with DHS is about all I can tell you was mm-hmm. to protect their identity. They do transnational criminal investigations inside Mexico, told me that that place is off limits, that it's been put off limits for any kind of special investigations that they would normally do that, that are not necessarily terrorism related, but that would be smuggling related, that they would normally target at a place like that. Now it's off
0: limits. And it's off limits because the U.S. authorities have said that they're not allowed to look into it? Yes. It's regarded as a humanitarian place of altruism and to be left alone. Unbelievable. So the other story that you ended up reporting from there was something very different. First of all, what was that and how did you stumble on it? So yeah, it's related in a way. For about six months, I've been
1: hearing from different border patrol agents. I have one friend who works on a bridge, one of the ports of entry on a bridge, just kept telling me, you know, every single day the Mexicans hand off hundreds of immigrants on the bridge and just let them go through the bridge. They're not all entering illegally between the bridges mm-hmm. or you know, through the brush. And I was never able to nail down what that was. I just kept hearing about it. I kept hearing about it consistently. And um, when I went to Tijuana, I visited a couple of shelters. And what the shelter managers were telling me sounded just like what I was hearing. Everybody in the shelter was actually in a queue, a line yeah. to get a handoff
0: on the bridges. At the ports of entry. In other words, rather than sneaking across, they were coming in legally? Yeah. And, and there, there wasn't just a few,
1: it was thousands. Mm-hmm. And that it was happening at all the ports
0: of entry. So, it was kind of this widespread thing, not like a pilot program or something. And these are people without visas. In other words, this isn't the normal traffic, which happens every day at every port of entry. These are people who otherwise- would have been illegal aliens, and so there was some program that we were running that basically let them, waved them in, kind of.
1: Right, and a lot of them turned out to be people who either had been expelled under Title 42, the pandemic quit rapid expulsion measure, Mm -hmm. or would have been. They were in the category of types that would be expelled, tried, or were subject to the court-ordered remnant of Remain in Mexico. Right. Some were still being pushed back and returned to Mexico. But they found that they could just turn right around and enter this other queue and get in that way. And what is this program that they're using? So it doesn't really have a name, but it is a humanitarian parole program. And the way it works is that you get in queue in a shelter Lots of shelters. There are eight or nine or a dozen different shelters in Tijuana alone. They have to keep expanding because the demand is so great. Mm -hmm. So they get in the queue and they sign up, and all these NGOs are in these shelters, helping them to gather the required paperwork that the Americans require. Once they gather up this paperwork, they have the Mexicans, the government of Mexico, Tijuana actually, their municipalities have that responsibility. Enter the material and names it to a CBP secure portal that they all have password to. Then they load them up on a bus and drive them over every morning, and Mexican IM walks them over and hands them off to the Americans. And it's going on every day several times a day at San Ysidro. And and by the way, the Muslim shelter is doing this too. It's part of it. I see. So they've moved about 300 people over this way since June. So half of the people that they keep, the Muslim immigrants, are in queue for that. And the ones that don't want to be in queue for it do the illegal route. And they get humanitarian parole themselves once they cross illegally. Everybody is,
0: pretty much. First of all, to be clear for listeners, the Biden administration is basically creating this parallel immigration system. They think the immigration limits are too tight, and they're going to just let people in and stay if they cross illegally, but they just do this so they don't even have to bother crossing illegally. This keeps them out of the so-called encounter statistic that we hear about how many people are apprehended at the border. Is that correct? Yes,
1: that's what's happening. It's a pair. Of, that's a good way to put it. It's a, it's a slipstream route, a new one into the country. And it, it really kind of tickles this desire by, you know, Muslim advocate organizations that want to create a, a safe way for people to get in. And in this way, they don't have to deal with smugglers. They don't have to pay big fees to cross. It is safer for them to cross, but by the same token, it then attracts more people to do it, right? If they right. are willing to wait for a month and you've got all this help, everybody's helping you in. The shelters are all supported by different nonprofits and the United Nations are mainly supporting these things. Interesting. Volunteer organizations. So I interviewed a number of shelter managers,
0: four altogether. Count Sonia Garcia. The other shelters were just sort of general shelters, not, yes. not sort of Muslim-specific or anything else. That's right. So, I realized what I was seeing from, you know, just
1: from what I'd been hearing for months about this thing. I realized this was it. I Actually, this was a real thing. And now, I was in it. Mm-hmm. And so, I went to a couple hours' drive east to the city of Mexicali which has been a center for cross-border congregation and travel for immigrants. A lot of them are heading over through the Eula Gap Mm -hmm. through there, but it turns out that they have the same thing. They've got this expanding system of shelters, and everybody is waiting in line to get through the government shelter and then a handoff of the border. And I just asked the government shelter
0: manager. This is the Mexicali city government on the Mexican side, right? That, that's
1: right, with Mexican municipal police officers, Mexicali right. police officers guarding the place, and it's run entirely by the city. Mm-hmm. And I just asked, you know, can I hang around and, and watch the migrants get processed and then traveled over to the Americans? And he just said, sure, nobody'd ever ask. So the next morning, said, you know, be here at eight, we'll have a load. We'll be processing you know, probably 30 of them, and you can interview anybody you want, watch what we do, and the whole thing. I recognize it's a rare opportunity to see this thing from the inside. Wow. That's pretty much what was going on. The migrants are required to have a sponsor set up on the U.S. side. Right. We'll take them in that's not that hard a lot of them have family members or you know their friends or friends and somebody said stay in my back bedroom or whoever right. and they need to show their humanitarian need and this is where it's it kind of interesting to me because it's exposed this part of the system is vulnerable in my view to you know fraud- mm-hmm. anybody could just think they have a claim of woe I was beat up, I'm running from something, whatever it is. They can,
0: if they want, make it up. And just to be clear, this is not an asylum process. In other words, they're not making that kind of formal asylum claim. They're just coming up with a story that's plausible enough to get the Biden people to wave them into the United States. That's right, but. What they're doing down there will become the basis
1: of an asylum claim later, and it'll be a really good basis because it'll be a documentation that they created during this time. Interesting. The documentation that they're creating involves psychologists, which they bring in several days a week to all of the shelters, and they'll give an assessment. Tell us about how traumatized you are. And then they'll provide a written assessment saying, this person is traumatized. Put it in your file. <laughs> Interesting. They'll need to have some kind of evidence of whatever terrible thing happened to them criminally or you know, political persecution or something like that back home. So you need a police report for that. So American lawyers will come down from the law schools, San Diego law and a bunch of different law schools they have students, law school students participating in this, who help them file police reports back in the home country by phone. And then they just have the police reports faxed up. It goes in the file. You have documentation of the terrible thing that happened, right? None
0: of that could be faked, obviously, right?
1: Right. right. I'm being sarcastic here.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah,
1: no exposure there. Right. I also saw a lot of sick people there's a provision for medical urgent medical attention and you know i found a guy who had lung cancer was going in the next day to get you know full treatment chemo at us taxpayer expense
0: a lot of these people are coming in for you know major surgical procedures wow that they're not paying for frankly for the most part right i mean because if you no, can pay for not. it you can get a visa and arrange it and come to the united states
1: Yeah, of course.
0: And then also,
1: a lot of Mexican, for all intents and purposes, they're laborers. They're just Mexican guys Mm -hmm. who get pushed back immediately under 42 or just get returned. And, you know, if there was any kind of cartel shooting in their city somewhere, they'd get to say, well, I'm fleeing cartel violence. And there had been some of that in Jalisco and Michoacán and Oaxaca. Right. So a lot of Mexicans from those areas are being let in, not families. So all different kinds of immigrants, the Hondurans and El Salvadorans, people that are subject to 42, mm-hmm. and people who would get pushed back under remain in Mexico, which is still going to be in place for a while. And anybody else who wanted to apply. And I guess the point is that shelter managers can't keep up with demand this thing is expanding it's spreading like wildfire everybody i talked to i said how did you hear about this and they said well my neighbors and my friends and
0: everybody's doing this so we came to do it because as a practical matter if they're let in legally first of all it's safer and cheaper for them and then whether they apply for asylum or not whether they actually get asylum or not doesn't really matter because they're already in the united states And this administration isn't going to deport them. And if some administration in the future tries to, then, you know, they'll they'll bring out the sob stories and we'll say we have to amnesty these people because they've been here for so long. So, I mean, the issue is this administration is basically thumbing its nose at the legal limits on immigration through this program where it it lets in people under extraordinarily low standards – who were basically just here for as long as they want to stay if they make it through. That's right. I mean, once they're past CBP on the bridge Mm -hmm. or at the port of
1: entry, they're pretty much in forever. Nobody's leaving. You know how that goes. Yep. And they know it, and the NGOs know it, and everybody, the CBP knows it. Everybody knows it. They're just in, and they're going to stay in.
0: In a sense, it seems like this is – the administration sort of pre-planning for the end of Title 42, which will result in, by the time you hear this, may already have happened. Although that's, you know, it's not clear whether it still be in place or not. But if and when Title 42 is ended, everybody understands the numbers are going to go way up of apprehensions at the border. In a sense, this is a way of cooking the books. So the number of illegal crossings, isn't as high and the administration will be able to say well look it's you know it's all that's just legal that doesn't matter illegal alien apprehensions are not climbing and so what's the problem what are you complaining about
1: right and it also has established the infrastructure for the day that the administration can implement its quick rubber stamp asylum process interesting right. That they have created, and for the day that humanitarian parole gets struck down, there is litigation challenging their use right. of this questionable legal authority, which is supposed to be for one-off cases. You know, mm-hmm. the Mexican cop shot a few times is crawling up the riverbank, you know, help me, they're going to parole that one guy in. Right. But not for masses and thousands upon thousands of people. So, the asylum process they proposed where just your frontline USCIS officer can actually bestow permanent asylum at, on the spot right. if they want or very shortly thereafter, these bridge operations are set up for that perfectly. Interesting. They can do that. All of the paperwork and all of the Material that is collected by the NGOs, questionably, in my opinion, are going to be, you know, in a file folder. They all have these file folders as they are being walked over. Right. It's almost perfectly set up for
0: that. Interesting. Interesting. So, this has really been kind of disturbing, uh, what you found down there. And what to me is most remarkable is no one else has been reporting on this. I mean, you've been doing some really great reporting on this but you know why hasn't the LA Times or Reuters or AP or the New York Times been writing about this it's really kind of remarkable and it sort of underlines how the media bias isn't so much that the stories are biased although that happens sometimes as well it's more like the choice of what to write about and what questions to ask is one of the things that it seems to me is the way you see media bias happen and my sense is writing about this would be seen as somehow punching down or what have you and that you know immigrants are a protected class so too much inquiry into what's going on at the border would be problematic
1: well you know for one thing it's very difficult to discern this thing i mentioned to you i've been hearing about this thing for 6 months off and on that they're handing people off at the bridges and I couldn't get at it. Can't see it. You can't fly a drone over it. Mm -hmm. Like you can, you know, Fox news flying their drones over, you know, 3000 people that just turned themselves in between the ports because you don't know what you're seeing. You just see some people walking off the bridge with backpacks and you don't know what their circumstance was or how they got there. Or if you're on the Mexican side, you're in the shelters, if you don't ask the right questions, you don't really, you wouldn't know that they're in queue. This whole thing is a big line. It's a system. So it's just hard to see it. And then the other problem is that, you know, the administration won't talk about it. They won't release the numbers and they won't acknowledge it. There was some reporting after our piece went up by the Epic Times and a couple of other publications that put in requests to the administration for response, for acknowledgement, for information. And to this day, as far as I know, no response
0: at all. They're not
1: talking about
0: it. Right? It's, it's dark. But, you know, in a sense, that's sort of the job of reporting is to find things that are kept in the dark and bring them out into the light. And the big newspapers and the big wire services, they have lots of people. And they have the wherewithal to have uncovered these stories if they were interested. It's pretty clear to me they just weren't interested. And it's more power to you for having sniffed out these stories and reported on them. Yeah,
1: well, as you know, I was a reporter for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. And if you cover immigration, if you're an immigration reporter for you know any of the major newspapers, this is like the moon landing. This whole thing, you know, right. the numbers that are coming across. I mean, this is if you cover the aerospace industry, you know, this is you know the invention of intercontinental flight. Like, right. you, this is the biggest story of your entire life. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm always surprised that I don't see any immigration reporters down there.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised uh, you know, writing about um, this. But and in fact, another thing that I'm not surprised about is that you're the one who has written and should be coming out at some point relatively soon what I would consider the definitive book on what were the reasons for the border crisis, how this happened. If you could plug the book a little bit, it would be appropriate as well. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, the
1: book is called Overrun, obviously a descriptor of what's going on down there at the border. Greatest mass migration crisis in U.S. history by all nonpartisan metrics. Right. So if this is a historic event, then somebody has to start by documenting it. You know, like what happened? Why did it happen? What are the basic five W's uh, behind this thing? And get it out there, at least as a start, for the country to eventually understand everything about what happened so that the electorate can make decisions either at the ballot box or in Congress or in legislatures, if they want to keep this thing going or if they want to end it, you have to kind of
0: comprehend how it began. Right, and instead what we're getting is, you know, books about who said what to whom at what cocktail party in Washington as though that makes any difference. And one of the biggest stories in the nation is not getting the attention it deserves, except from you. And so as just the last plug, the book's title is Overrun. What is the subhead of the book subtitle? How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Order Crisis in U.S. History. And it's available now for pre-order, Overrun. Again, Todd Benzman, B-E-N-S-M-A-N. You can find it in all the usual places where you might buy books for pre-order, obviously online. Todd, thanks for coming on, and I'm certain we're going to have you on in the future as these stories and other stories unfold at the border. Thanks for having me. And finally this week, I wanted to draw attention to a blog post, a short post, but it was an interesting concept. Uh, David North wrote a short piece about the foreign worker policy in the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, one of those Persian Gulf Emirates. And his point was, in some sense, their policy toward foreign workers is actually more constructive, more enlightened, was the word he used, than ours. Now, generally speaking, that's not true. He was clear that it's only in a particular sense. These Gulf states, not just the UAE, but Oman, Bahrain, Kuwait, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, the big one, are notoriously abusive. Of their foreign workforce. In fact, foreigners do most of the work in these places. They're from India and Pakistan and the Philippines and elsewhere, and they're really treated like garbage. But what David was highlighting in his post was a policy of what in the UAE they call Emiratization. In other words, Emirates, the United Emirates, Emiratization, which actually there's a comparable policy they call Saudiization in Saudi Arabia. And the point of it is, to require employers using foreign workers, in this case, skilled workers, to require them to try to move toward hiring local workers instead. You know, there are extra costs involved, basically create incentives to transition away from using the foreign workers toward using UAE citizens, or in the case of Saudi Arabia, Saudis, you get the idea. And this has been going on for a long time. I'm not sure how well it works. This is in no way a defense of these countries. They're, they're terrible places with regard to foreign workers. But the concept is important. And the concept is that foreign worker programs should aspire to their elimination. In other words, that they are stopgaps, the goal of which should be the disappearance of that system itself because there's no need for the foreign workers. In the United States, unfortunately, our foreign worker programs not only are not envisioned in that way, there's sort of a little sop toward that in the H-1B program where they have to pay a fee, a training fee supposedly for training Americans, but it's just for show. But in one of our big foreign worker programs, the um, optional practical training program, we actually subsidize the employment of foreign workers. So, the point here I think is important. And again, we're not going to have much to learn about anything from these Persian Gulf sheikdoms. But in this one narrow sense, there is an important insight. And that is that all foreign worker programs should be designed and should have as their goal not the continuation of the program, but the eventual elimination of the program that it should be financially and otherwise designed to eliminate itself over time. And we have nothing really meaningful like that in our foreign worker programs. And when Congress revisits these programs, and frankly, even within current structure, when administrations look at rulemaking, they ought to approach all of these foreign worker programs with obvious exceptions, like, you know, foreign diplomatic personnel, that kind of stuff. But I mean, those programs that bring in workers where American workers are also working there, and then all of the big ones work that way. H-1B for skilled workers, H-2B for unskilled non-ag workers, H-2A for agricultural workers, and there's a whole alphabet soup of other ones. All of those programs should be designed and run with the objective of eliminating the need for them altogether. That's it for this week. This is Mark Ricorian for Parsing Immigration Policy. If you have any comments, reactions, complaints, suggestions, what have you, just email us at center at cis.org. That's center at, and it's C-I-S as in Sam, center for immigration studies dot O-R-G. And if you get this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate or review it, please do both of those, preferably five-star review. But if it's less, please tell us why. And I hope you will tune in next week.